good day, friends. Welcome to Tuesday, December 13th, and today's episode of Enough for Today. I'm so thankful you've joined me. We are in Psalm 68, and we're really going to dive into this psalm today. Hopefully, we'll get through the first four verses. Let me give you the big picture. This is a psalm of celebrating the victorious nature of God. It's a messianic psalm in that it points to the conquering final ultimate kingdom of Jesus the Messiah, okay? But it's also very ancient in its conceptuality. We got to get we're going to have to later in the psalm get into the head of of an ancient Hebrew king as he viewed victory. You might view victory today as uh, as as a good investment in the stock market or a good purchase. You might view victory as an accomplishment, like an achievement uh, of you know some degree or some promotion at work. Um, what did victory? What does victory look like through the eyes of an ancient warrior king? And what does safety and provision? Uh, what does uh, uh, that God look like through his eyes? A God who brings him. Uh, security and victory. Um, <clears throat> but the parallels and the principles that we're going to learn from the psalm are wonderful. And just even in the first four verses, our hearts can rise to the heights of celebration. Let's read them. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. Let them also that hate him flee before him. Now, in the mind of an ancient warrior king, you'd be picturing enemies coming down the hills towards your town and surrounding you with chariots and horses and footmen and, you know, kind of an epic Lord of the Rings kind of battle. We're talking about hand-to-hand combat uh, against pagan nations that surrounded Israel. Uh, and, and so David says, let God arise into the scene of being surrounded by these threats, by these taunting, wicked, pagan enemies, and they'll be scattered. Uh, let God arise and all the enemies will be scattered. Let them flee that hate him. Look at verse 2. The imagery is, as smoke is driven away, so drive them away as wax melteth before the fire. So let the wicked perish at the presence of God. So two things I want you to draw out of this verse is, first of all, the metaphor. Think about when you blow out your, your birthday cake, your candles. You know, smoke just, just scatters. Uh, think about wax melting as soon as it gets near a flame. It just turns to liquid. This is the nature of God's strength over all of his enemies. Now, David's thinking probably physical enemies uh, as they were surrounded on every side by pagan nation and pagan people that wanted to defeat Israel, wipe them off the map. Frankly, they still are. That's still the story of the nation of Israel and has been for thousands of years. Uh, really, all of that points to the existence of God, the providence and sovereignty of God, and the promises that God's word is true. And when he chooses to work through a people to reveal himself to the whole planet, um, it does make sense that Satan would want to destroy those people. And it makes sense that we can see his hand of protection by studying the history of those people, his hand of preservation. So God, in this, in this passage, David is praying, let God arise as a mighty conquering hero. Let him drive away, blow away, melt away the enemies, and particularly the wicked. Now, this is the second thought I want to drive at verse 2. The, the idea of wicked, we've, we've talked about this before, but it's really important in a psalm like this. 
there's two kinds of people in God's economy. There's wicked and there's righteous. Everybody fits into one of two categories. Now, I did not say there's good and bad. I did not say there are holy and unholy, okay? Um, there's, a, there's a lot of ways to frame this, and immediately our minds, our 21st century performance-based minds, go to good and bad. And we define wicked as someone who does bad things and righteous as someone who does good things. But that is insufficient in its definition because let's be honest, even though you might be a good person who does some good things, you also do some bad things. So does that make you righteous or wicked? Um, well, you say it just depends on whether you do more good things or more bad things. Okay, uh, what kinds of things? How bad are we talking about? And who's keeping score? And why do we always land in our own minds on the positive side of the scale? The fact is, um, we're not equipped to be the judges of that kind of micro measurement of our own motives. We don't even know our own hearts. So really saying good, doing good, doing bad uh, is, the, is the measurement. It leaves a lot of ambiguity and God is, is, is many things, but he is never uh, an ambiguous God when it comes to what is right and what is wrong. It is very clear. It is very black and white. He is the judge. He is the executor of justice. And he keeps perfect, accurate, accurate impeccable records. Okay, So in God's economy of perfect record keeping, unfortunately, none of us are good and all of us are bad. Uh, which if that were the standard, that would put us automatically on the side of the wicked in these verses. Okay, So we're, we're talking about a comprehensively perfect, kind of righteousness versus any taint of sin or wrong, which automatically moves to wickedness. Righteous and wicked is an eternal standard. Everybody falls into one of those two categories. By birth, death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Uh, that's Romans 5. Isaiah says, all our righteousness is as filthy rags. So by birth... By blood, we are all born into the wicked side of those classifications. But God is a redeemer. He's a savior. He's the God of our salvation. And he's provided through the gospel and through Jesus atonement, substitutionary atonement. Jesus took our place on the cross and he took all of our wickedness and paid for it. And by faith and grace and mercy, he offers us his righteousness. And so, Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. That's the Old Testament view of the gospel. So here's the deal. God's categories of righteous and wicked is not about behavior. It's about belief. Those who believe God by faith as a redeemer and a savior, those who place faith in his way of atoning for our sins, which is substitutionary blood sacrifice, death, the death of the testator on the cross, those who believe and receive that atonement, they're declared righteous in God's eternal economy. Those who reject that atonement, even if they go about doing good things to try to atone for themselves, they have no atonement. And so even their good things are wicked in God's eyes. It's an amazing grace-based, gospel-based theological framework. I have just given you the foundations of what we call biblical theology or gospel centrality. 
the idea that the way you understand these words is through the economy of God, that nobody is righteous. He declares all of us unrighteous, and all of us are wicked except by faith in his righteousness in which he declares us righteous. It's a received righteousness. It's a imputed righteousness by grace through faith. So, if you have not yet received Jesus as Savior, then you would fall into the category of the wicked in this verse. If you have received the atoning grace of God by faith, then you would fall into the category of the righteous. So what's God going to do to wickedness? Well, fortunately, because he's good, he's going to drive it away and melt it. He's going to destroy it. Now, he doesn't want to destroy you or me. That's why he's a loving, saving God. But what's he going to do with the righteous? Look at verse 3. But let the righteous be glad. Now, you come into celebration this Christmas, and you have a genuine reason to celebrate if you've trusted Jesus, because he has declared you righteous. And that is exponential reason to rejoice, to be glad. Let them rejoice before God. You have access to the throne room of heaven, and when you come into God's presence, you can rejoice, you can celebrate, you can dance for joy. Yea, look at what he says, let them be, let them exceedingly rejoice. In fact, verse four, let them sing, let them explode with singing and praises to his name. Why? Because he's a savior, he's a good God, he's on our side, he's by our side. Extol him that rideth upon the heavens and call him by his name, David says, Jehovah or Jah. Think about that. God says, I'm not only going to save you and call you my servant, I'm going to give you a direct access as my child to my presence. And when you come into my presence, you're going to want to immediately bow in humility, but I'm going to tell you to rise and sing and celebrate and rejoice and dance and be festive and jubilant and call me by my name because I'm your father and I'm your friend. Extol him that rideth upon the heavens. What a powerful God. What a sweeping victory upon us kind of God. And we end verse 4 today with, and rejoice before him. So, my friend, I've taken a little extra time today, but we've talked gospel and we've talked the most significant reasons to rejoice. I don't know what's going on in your life today, what sadness is happening, what hardness is unfolding, what burdens you might be carrying. But Come before the presence of God and know you're accepted there and exceedingly rejoice because he is by your side and on your side. Happy Tuesday. We'll see you tomorrow.